Welcome to My on Mondays, an explorative approach to the possessive my through narratives, art, and sound. Each Monday brings a new creation and unique perspective. My on Mondays is brought to you by Ming Studios, a contemporary art space and international artist residency program dedicated to the exhibition, experience, and exploration of arts and culture. Along with exhibiting artists from around the world, Ming also serves the community by hosting innovative programs including performances, workshops, screenings, readings, artist talks, and other cultural activities. For more information or if you'd like to participate in Maya on Mondays, you can visit our website at mingstudios.org. Welcome and thank you so much for joining us for our 10th episode of My on Mondays. Today's featured guest is Daniel Drennan El Awar. Daniel is an artist, writer, and activist. Born in Lebanon and adopted at two months, he grew up in Iran, Australia, and finally the United States with four years lived in France. In 2004, he returned to Lebanon where he lived and worked for 12 years. In 2016, he returned to the United States and currently works as a professor of illustration in Canada. His piece today is titled, My Vigil. Thank you. Last week I traveled across Surrey to reach the Guildford Recreation Center where hundreds of people were receiving their second dose of vaccine over a year into a preventable epidemic. On the way back, while waiting under the overpass that serves as a bus stop, I noticed a wheat paste flyer attached to the concrete pillar next to me. It read, Justice for Georgia, Stop Stealing Indigenous Children, National Day of Solidarity to End the Millennial Scoop. Georgia is five years old and is about to be moved 
to her 15th foster home. This formalized version of much more sinister genocidal precursors continues apace. Perhaps you have heard the news that the land now heaves up those it can no longer hold quietly. The earth demands witness to what it cannot quiescently hide away. The ground opens up and reveals the graves of those murdered in the residential schools. Endless unmarked graves, endless remains, endless unknowns. These children are precursive to the Butterbox babies and the children of Tuam, and the children of the foundling hospitals and of the orphan trains, as well as the ensuing scooped and adopted and fostered and trafficked, all of those deemed other, slated for destruction, extirpated under the loathsome pretense of beneficence and of charity. In feeble reply and feigned shock from this psychopathic country come the excuses and the reasonings and the defensive postures. That's not us, I hear stated out loud. Or, it wasn't genocide, strictly speaking, I read in the op-ed article, as if there are levels and nuance to such atrocities. My reply is quite emotionless. This is exactly what this nation enterprise was designed to do. To be shocked is to believe in a moral basis to the current system we live under. It is to suggest that this is an aberration and not the norm. The wheat-pasted flyer is but one tear in a bucket. It joins the posters seeking missing indigenous women here the billboards in Georgia and other places doing the same, the milk cartons I grew up with featuring missing children, all fading into a banal continuum of crime on top of crime. The murderous zeal of settler colonialism remains unslaked, and its barbarous foundations revealed themselves. I entitle this treatise my vigil. Vigil as in vigilant. Vigil as in the constant mode of maintaining, of keeping composure. Vigil, in this light, should not be confused with the weariness felt in the face of the unsustainable affect, pretense, and fronting of those appealing to the butchers. Nor should vigil be seen as a passive non-response in light of the quibbling, of the denial, of the hair-splitting as put forth by the murderers themselves. My vigil may be in their presence, but they are not my audience. Asata Shakur said, Nobody in history has ever gotten their freedom by appealing to the moral sense of the people who were oppressing them. Such an appeal must pass beyond them to those they deem invalid. To reject are their veiled euphemisms and epithets. Resilient, for one example, 
is a word used by those who are surprised that we are still present. I speak over their heads and beyond their means of understanding. Malcolm X said, we are working on our own people. I understand this to mean those of like mind, not necessarily those of the same identity. For there is no resilience, there is only survival. I need not make the case, for one small example, that my orphanage was a site of euthanasia, to put it mildly. I have researched, I have witnessed, I have the evidence. I do not wish what I know on my worst enemy, who, let it be known, would not be able to remain sane if confronted with this reality. The burden of proof, quite on the contrary, is on those who refuse to face up to it. An excerpt from a fledgling adoption memoir I am currently working on, describing my orphanage. On the other side of the same room stands a row of file cabinets, and within are arranged the procedural byproducts, the filed folders of children now departed, their dossiers crammed with letters and airmail envelopes, with pediatricians' notes and vaccination dates, with wishes and blessings, files stuffed with missives and thank you offerings, as well as pictures showing these children's countenances bereft of smiles, posed out of context among estranging groups and their bright beaming faces. These children of Lebanon, now a distant diaspora, the photographs sent by proud parents and haphazardly crafted families full of hope and promise and new beginnings filling up steel cabinets tidily filing away the myriad lives of those given egress, conveyance, an exodus. And these gunmetal gray cabinets contain other stories, other dossiers, annotated ledgers, children who came back, who were sent back, perhaps too sick, or perhaps not wanted after all, returned and here, superscripted in red above a majority of the entries found amongst them, deceased soon thereafter, and here, child succumbed to illness, vile and passive euphemisms revealing an insufferable double rejection, an abjectly suicided reaction, and here, more yet still, in a fit of unexpected criminal admission. Children refused treatment at nearby hospitals during the Civil War. Doctors seeing no point. What is so easily written is so much more easily done. We weren't saved by the orphanage. We survived it.
I sent a text to a dear friend at the end of Aid wishing him a blessed Ramadan. He replied, I'm in Gaza. I had known for a while he was planning this journey, a journey to visit his family not seen for ten long years. I did not know he had left, and now the endless destruction of Gaza took on additional proportion. In such a situation, words fall flat. There are no words for the Palestinian, no words for the indigenous of Turtle Island and their southern counterparts in the so-called New World. James Baldwin, after the murder of Emmett Till, said, what is ghastly and really almost hopeless in our racial situation now is that the crimes we have committed are so great and so unspeakable that the acceptance of this knowledge would lead, literally, to madness. And yet, with all respect due and apologies to Baldwin, his reference to madness implies a humanity to appeal to this is the mistake we make when we imagine ourselves to be part of something premised on our bodily exclusion. Moving forward means revoking such fallacies, rescinding energy spent appealing to be seen, to be heard, to be viewed as human to begin with. During the day of return in May 2011, when 70,000 Palestinians and supporters marched to the border of Palestine to demonstrate for an end to occupation and exile, we witnessed the sniper murder of 12 young men. There were smoke screens, and then snipers arrived in position, and then echoed the popping noise of their rifles, and then unfolded the determined shepherding up the hill of lives laid low. It was 1987 after the first Intifada started. I was in a New York City coffee shop. The words I overheard stung and burned and never left me. I wrote down my thoughts in a sketchbook. I revived them in something I wrote after the above massacre. Words from the first Intifada, an excerpt. Let them rot, you said, your vague pronouns spat out. Let them starve in the desert, you said. The fact that they exist, apparently crime enough. The fact that they resist, seemingly criminal enough for your judgment, your sentence, your execution and thus you complete your discrete logic, the annihilation of those who, to you, never were. A double negative that sums up your false positive. And so is unleashed your displacement, your dispossession, your theft, your will to kill, and you come unhinged of all people and so fly unfettered your noisome epithets. So are built your ghettos, so rains down your destruction, so is revealed your murderous zeal, you of all people. You slammed your coffee down and spat out said menace and I stopped, 
and I turned and I caught your eye. I thought, what is so easily said is much more easily done. Let them starve in the desert. Let them rot in the sun. Let them riot in Gaza, you said, and our eyes met, and I saw you, and I saw you seeing me, and I completed your thought, computed your equation. I arrived at your horrid calculus, infinitely revealed in your possessing and usurping and stealing, as well as in your means and ways and methods. And you coldly enacted your endeavor and you plotted your task with a bureaucrat's precision, a mild surprise only that you stopped not to collect the shoes, nor the watches, nor the spectacles, while you seemed to so value the skin and the bones and the eyes. You of all people. Watching the endless stream of news about Gaza flashed me back to the July War of 2006, the 33 days of bombardment that destroyed the southern suburbs of Beirut, the infrastructure of Lebanon, as well as towns in the south. It was July 14th, 15 years ago, that I wrote the following. Excerpts from a diary kept during the July War in 2006. I woke and could hear the sound of the Mu'edlin calling the faithful to prayer, a rhythmic, cadenced call that I find comforting in its daily reminder of one's humble status, of one's humanity, of one's community, to all points compass-wise called out. And then another sound of low-flying jets, a roar and a sonic boom that shook the building. And then another sound an explosion to the south. I ran to the balcony door, and the neighbors did the same, and lights came on, and people stared out into the dark sky, now reflecting light from a bomb blast just south in the Dahye. And the noise of jets forces you to duck your head as if they might graze the top of your very skull. And their sonic booms shock you into the very corners of your apartment, though they cause no harm, save some broken glass somewhere else. And the dull thud of bombs meeting their targets reveals itself in a viscerally felt pressure wave that is, comparatively speaking, easier on the ears, as though to belie its deadliness. And my sister called which amazed me in terms of phone service here, and I kept her on the phone to keep her voice close, the sounds of her voice comfort in the dark, only I wish she hadn't heard the bombs drop. I wish she didn't have to hear the sonic booms ricocheting off the walls and through my head, the pause in our conversation endless, as outside the noise screamed and pounded and boomed, and silent pink lights rose to meet no target, 
and yellow-orange flames reflected off of the smoke of their own creation. And my parents called, and I prayed that my mother might be spared the sound of the night before, straining my ears for sounds of jets, ready to hang up if necessary to prevent such a transmission, sounds no mother should hear, especially when that noise is directly delivered to other mothers, that noise and the bomb it delivered that mowed down eight children of a mother's work yesterday in one fatal moment, that noise that haunts mother's nightmares throughout this country, that piercing scream of death come quickly. And then silence, as after a nightmare, the rising sun serves to vanquish evil. A dark plume of smoke rose heavy in the southern sky, accompanied by not a sound, not a siren, not a cry, not a car, not a voice, nothing, no one. So silent that one might try to sleep, exhausted, as if hearing and seeing in and of themselves were fatiguing activities. My friend and his family left the residential tower, knowing that buildings full of civilians are a favorite target, and they moved in with his sister's family. I sat vigil every night, watching the Arab news channels, waiting for word, stealing myself to the growing body count. His building, fortunately this time, was not one of the databased targets However, the bookstore next door, a lifetime of one man's work, a center of culture and community in Gaza, was. To note is that the destruction and erasure of language, memory, history, and culture is a colonizer's prime directive. To further note is that whether such violence comes in the instantaneous form of bombs dropped from U.S.-supplied warplanes, or whether it comes in the slow-motion forms of poverty, of attrition, of sanction, of embargo, of willful deprivation of food, shelter, and medical care, or of defining nine-tenths of the global population as excess, this violence is the norm. We are not witnessing global crises. We have simply lost our ability to sequester ourselves away from what the world lives day to day. The line dividing those seen as economically and politically embodied and those not remains as stark now as when Bishop Vital Justin Grandin in 1875 said, we instill in them a pronounced distaste for the native life so that they will be humiliated when reminded of their origin. 
when they graduate from our institutions, the children have lost everything native except their blood. The word accept here is the giveaway, the criminal admission. Accept their blood implies that the atrocious task is not complete, that a facade of outward alteration has been accomplished, but that the taint of blood remains, that the genocidal intent has not been achieved, that the extirpation has not been brought to literal fruition. Fruition, from the old French fruition, and directly from late Latin fruitionem, the act of enjoying, a pleasurable attainment. It is no accident that Canada's federally mandated term for non-Anglos is visible minority. It is no accident that such minorities provide great entertainment in sanctioned and subsidized minstrelsies, Kim's convenience, ethnic food festivals, endless aesthetic references to vagaries of identity, devoid of context and distanced from source. Franz Fanon referred to this as mummified culture. He said, a new system of values is imposed by the heavy weight of cannons and sabers. Historic observation reveals that the aim sought is rather a continued agony than a total disappearance of the pre-existing culture, which becomes closed, fixed in the colonial status, caught in the yoke of oppression. The formalized shuck and jive of another era allows for existence, provides for survival, but this is not living. Witness to the anti-racism industries, the fashionable theories, the wholesale profiting from this abject condition, a colonizing NGO mentality, the willful avoidance of proposing radical alternatives to this status quo. The history of resistance local to where I find myself now, whether indigenous, labor-based, from within the Radar movement, the farmer, Chinese worker, and other general strikes is thus negated. Currently, we see a plenitude of such sites of resistance the interruption of pipelines and foresting efforts, the blocking of ports and train tracks, and hunger strikes in the prisons, among many others. The necessary praxis of surpassing our current dystopia is not a secret. The methods and modes are known. The means to this end are in our hands. As the Palestinians say, al-wujud maqawma, Existence is resistance. Such action becomes the only valid culture, an art of protest and resistance, a desire to break with the continued agony. It was notable last summer, and every riotous summer before that, 
the outcry in the face of the destruction of property, especially that which didn't belong to the peoples and communities it is found among. Kwame Ture said, the oppressor is only opposed to violence when the oppressed talk of using violence against them. Above and beyond this hypocrisy, we should note the depraved elation of the oppressor when they use comparatively trifling violence as an excuse for their wanton and pre-planned destruction. Quite on the contrary, such an outcry goes wholly missing when lives are involved, except for their blood. Some will point out the placement of the faces of children murdered in Gaza on the cover of the New York Times as proof of change. Quoting a dear friend, in the end, they always admit their crimes. And I would only add, and thus they delightedly seek out fodder for their dramas of contrition and their crocodile tears. I remember the huge banner that was hung from a downtown overpass in Beirut during the July War. It pictured Condoleezza Rice and named her as the Butcher of the Children of the Second Kana Massacre. Meanwhile, in the United States, she sits on the board of Dropbox, making her a corporate criminal on top of a war criminal. Norman Finkelstein, in an interview with Memory Television, stated, Why roll out the red carpet to George Bush's cabinet members less than two years after your whole country was destroyed by them? The Secretary of State said it was the birth pangs of a new Middle East. That's the statement of a freak. A human freak would compare the birth of a child with the destruction of a country. This may go far to explain why the continued existence of such countries is nourished by the destruction of children. Ten minutes before Condi's so-called ceasefire went into effect after the July War, the capital was intensely bombarded yet again. August 13, 2006, day 33 of the war on Lebanon. An excerpt. O oh, destroyer, I realize that it is only 33 days into your war, and you are upset that a deadline be placed on your destruction, that a moratorium be declared on your cluster bombs and implosion bombs and depleted uranium bunker busters and missiles of revenge with little girls' handwriting on them fired off by gleeful civilians. I realize that 8 a.m. looms large for you and you want that last bang for your buck. Or should I say America's bucks, the endless dollars that allow you to wage this war on Lebanon, this never-ending American war now dated half a century. And before you argue with me on this point, before you even open your mouth to dispute this, let me just say that it might behoove your soldiers to forego wearing the stars and stripes as bandanas while lazing and waiting in convoy lines. Thus you raise your bloody standard. 
And I realize that you know that your summer offensive must soon end, and that your land generals and your sea generals and your air generals all want in on the game, but honestly, when your devils, sick of sin, have come up with something resembling the nightmare's end, how can you brazenly ignore your dear United Nations that feigns asking that you respect at least at the very least, the spirit of this latest of a hundred or so resolutions that name you explicitly. Must you nonetheless continue to lay waste to Sur, to the Beqa, to the South? Must a 20 count of megaton bombs fall on the southern suburbs within the space of two minutes? It was indeed 20, for I counted them, standing in a doorframe, the building a sway as a house of cards might, as the very essence of time seemed stopped. The murderers remain unpunished. They pass away in peace while the world burns and the earth vomits up their crimes. In the above interview, Norman Finkelstein quotes Dolores Ibarruri Gomez, also known as La Pasionaria, who during the Spanish Civil War said, Antes morir de pie que vivir de rodillas. Better to die on our feet than to live on our knees. Her words spoke of a lived and ever-present vigilance in the face of those who not only wish us gone, but who have enacted the means for such extermination to take place. Such vigilant steadfastness and this idea of vigil is embodied for me in a poem by the Palestinian poet Taufik Ziad from his collection entitled Prisoners of Freedom. القضايا المشينة سجناء الحرية يا سادتي عجوز ولم ترحموا شيبتي عجوز ولم ترحموا دمعتي حولتم بلادنا مقابر وتفننتم في تنظيم المجازر زرعتم الرصاص في رؤوسنا يا سادتي أين زعماء عروبتي يا سادتي لا شيء هكذا يمر دون ما حساب فكل ما صنعتم لشعبنا مسجل على دفاتر يوم الحساب فيا ويلكم من الحساب يوم يأخذ كل ظالم ومظلوم حقه من عند الذي لا تضيع عنده مظلمتي يا سادتي هذه دمعتي يا سادتي The disgraceful case Sir, my old age yet no mercy from you me, aged, and you, merciless regarding my tears. You transformed our countries into cemeteries. Your masterpiece remains your methodical butchery. You plant bullets in our heads, sir. Where are our leaders, my fellow Arabs? 
Sir, this shall not pass unaccounted for. All you have done to our people is registered in notebooks, testament to the day of reckoning. Beware hence your woeful recompense when the downtrodden and oppressors receive their due. Injustices attested by they who spare no vagueness, sir. Before you, sir, my merest teardrop. I started writing this on so-called Canada Day, a few days before the celebration of the coup d'etat that established American empire on Turtle Island. I offer up this statement of acknowledgement, advocacy, and activation. I live uninvited on Kwantlen land. I work uninvited on the indigenous territories of the Musqueam, Squamish, and Tsleil-Waututh bands. This is an entreaty to shift our focus to the active and ongoing displacement, dispossession, and disinheritance that remain functional aspects of dominant systems and structures. I am completing work on this piece on the day commemorating the anniversary of Algeria throwing off its French colonial yoke. I conclude here with the end of my land acknowledgement. Notions of reconciliation though palliative, do not equate to justice. May the comprehension of this statement lead to revived ideals of indemnification, of atonement, of reclamation, of reinheritance. I vow to actively work toward restitution and repossession, not reconciliation, nor any similar deception from within the dominant structures and systems of occupation and oppression. Vandana Shiva said, The Cartesian illusion of being separate from the earth was the justification for separating people from the land. For those of us similarly displaced, dispossessed, disinherited, or else migrated, exiled, or otherwise transited against our will, we have a duty to reconnect, reestablish, and resource. Rassan Kanafani said, The Palestinian cause is not a cause for Palestinians only, but a cause for every revolutionary, wherever they may find themselves, as a cause of the exploited and oppressed masses of our era. This is as true today as it was when he voiced it decades ago. And thus the call to remain vigilant, to activate, and to always recall these words to live by, al-wujud maqawma, existence is resistance. I would like to express my thanks to those collaborating with me on this piece. 
I'm exceedingly grateful to my dear friend and colleague, Amania Sayed in Beirut, for her help with translation, as well as her reading of Taufik Ziad's poem. Amani currently works as a writer, researcher, and language arts instructor. I miss our discussions and debates. The music for this piece was graciously provided by Ziad Sadr in Nabatiye South. Ziad is a former student, artist, musician, as well as great inspiration to me. The duo he was part of for this music is called Qameh, here featuring Al Jazar. The name of the song is Ambedawar, I Am Seeking, and the mix is by Osloub, formerly of the Palestinian rap group Katibi Khamse. Finally, thank you for lending an ear to this audio cast. I appreciate your time and attention. for tuning in today. Next week, our featured guest is writer Heidi Cray. We hope you'll join us.